Hi, and welcome to today's episode. I'm talking with Dr. Johanna Friedrichsdotter about Viking women. She's the author of the brand new book that came out in April called Valkyrie, The Women of the Norse World. Now, unfortunately, I still don't have my copy. I think it's taking a little bit longer these days trying to swim across the pond, but I just can't wait to have it in my hands. I've only been able to read the short preview that's online, so I was even more excited to speak with her. So Dr. Friedrich's daughter, she's been doing research on Old Norse literature, history, and mythology for many years. But currently, she works at the National Library of Norway, and we actually do talk about it a little bit, so stay tuned. In the podcast, I interview scholars, students, academics, authors, amateurs, podcasters, and so many more. It's so fun to learn more about a topic from somebody who's very passionate about that topic. And it seems as though the internet gnomes are extra active lately because we had some microphone issues. So I apologize in advance if you do hear some microphone issues. As you know, not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time to discover more about women in Viking Age history, eh? Today I'm talking with Johanna Frederick's daughter, and I appreciate it so much that she's here because she is a Viking scholar, and she does gender history, which is so interesting and really exciting. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Rosie. I'm really delighted. I was thinking maybe we can start with your start. How did you get involved with Viking studies or any type of medieval studies? Yeah, that's um, all feels like a blur. It's <laughs> so long ago. <laughs> but um, when I was a teenager, we had to read some medieval literature in school and learn about Vikings. And um, I'm from Iceland, so we had to learn about how Iceland was settled originally, which was by the Vikings in probably the ninth century. And so that's kind of how I got interested originally. But then I was doing other things for a few years. But then I just came back to, to the medieval literature. I loved it so much. Um, couldn't stay away. And I went to graduate school um, to Oxford. And I was doing medieval English at the time. And then I got lucky enough, got paired up with Caroline Larrington, who was my supervisor for my master's. And we hit it off um, so well that I decided to stay on and do a doctorate. And uh, the rest is history, I guess. It's very, very nice. Let's talk about your topic a little bit. I'd be very interested if you can share what we're going to be discussing today. Well, the topic today is Viking women, which is uh, quite a big topic, really. I just wrote a book um, called Valkyrie, the Women of the Viking World, which came out from Bloomsbury just this April. And um, I wrote this book in 2018 and 19. So the book analyzes all of the different types of sources that we have um, for Viking women, and that would be sagas and poetry, first of all, and then archaeology, so looking at graves and you know buildings and all kinds of things that we have that the earth has kept for us for a thousand years or so um, and then it's been excavated and then in Scandinavia there are these stones um, that are called rune stones and picture stones and they just stand there in the landscape um, in the bare elements in the rain and, and snow and everything and people would put them up in the Viking Age often by a place where a lot of people were passing through. So maybe by like a crossroads that was, um, you know, the path between several different farms. So people would be traveling there. Then they would see this runestone and it was usually raised in memory of someone. And they would have an inscription carved into them that said who it was raised in memory of and then who paid for it and maybe a few other words. And then there's this island, it's called Gotland, it's, um, it belongs to Sweden. And they have this amazing tradition there 
where um, I guess it's partly because the stones there are so soft and so it's easy to carve them. And so they would carve all kinds of pictures that are probably depicting scenes from Norse mythology, maybe some ideas about like the afterlife or the person who um, died, who they are memorializing on the stone. And then this tradition was also alive elsewhere in the Viking world. So there's um, stones in England, for example, that have pictures on them as well. So there's a lot of different sources when you're going to study Vikings, and they're from different periods. So like the the runestones and the archaeology, that's from the Viking Age itself. But then you have these amazing narrative sources like the sagas and then the poetry. And that was written down in the 13th century. And the Viking Age was actually from around 800 to 1100. So you have like a slight challenge there because there's maybe 200 years 250 years separating, you know, the Viking Age itself and then the sagas or the poetry, at least um, when they were actually written down. And often the, like, the first witness that we have of a saga or a poem is from maybe the late 1200s. And so the challenge is like, how do you analyze all of these sources together and how do you synthesize them and how do you kind of recognize, you know, what you can sort of pick away and leave and decide that, you know, this is something that the author is making up. And then what of the saga is something that might have actually happened in reality and, you know, something that gives us an idea about life in the Viking Age itself, even though it's written 200 years or, or more after the fact. So when you're looking at all these sources, does it make it hard because it's almost like an oral history that you're trying to pick apart? sort of like uh, a folklore that you're looking for the grains of truth, right? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, when you have stories about, say, you know, a character who has a name and there's, you know, all kinds of conversations that the character is engaging in and so on, you don't really take everything that happens in the saga as the truth. But when maybe you have two sagas and there's quite similar things happening in both of them, and so you have like two characters and they're both women and they're kind of in a similar situation. Maybe their family wants them to marry someone they don't want to marry or something. And then they, they're reacting in quite a similar way. Then you can kind of decide that, well, you know, these authors are clearly expressing some of the kind of problems um, in society um, happen when you have maybe conflicting values or like, you know, conflicting opinions going on. And they're trying to work through that in, in their literature. And by that, you can actually kind of try to get towards their social structures and the way that they did things. And so that's kind of how you can use sagas as sources for maybe a period that's older than the actual time when it was written down. And do you take other things in consideration? You've mentioned archaeology. Are there any other writings or any other information that you can find elsewhere outside of those sagas and such? Yes. So the Vikings, they traveled around quite a lot, as we know, and they went to the UK. So they went to, you know, all over the place in England and Scotland and Ireland as well, and northern France. And they also went to the east. So like Ukraine and um, other places like in the east, um, east of Scandinavia, that is. And so sometimes the people that they met would write down their impressions of them, or they would uh, sort of have stories about them. And so sometimes there are like eyewitness sources, which is really, really valuable for us Viking scholars. And so there's, for example, um, one source that I used, which is like there was a monk in Paris so the Vikings actually attacked Paris, and they this is in the ninth century sometime, and they seem to have had some women with them. And this monk sort of has this scene where the Vikings are attacking, and then their women are kind of upbraiding them for for not fighting valiantly enough, and um, kind of egging them on. So when you have something like that, you can kind of maybe trust it up to a point. Um, obviously, this is being written by a victim of the Vikings, so we can't kind of trust completely what he says. He would obviously not necessarily want to kind of paint them extremely accurately. Um, but at the same time, we can sort of trust some of what he says. That's a really good base for your book and just any Viking scholar, where you're looking at multiple sources and almost like a puzzle trying to piece it together, I guess. 
Yeah, exactly. And when you kind of see similar things happening in different sources that are independent of each other, you can kind of start to sift through what might have happened in reality and then what's you know more of an invention by the scribe or by the storyteller. And when you're looking at all these sources, let's get into maybe some details that you're able to glean over the years. So the women were doing what? What were their roles? Yeah, I mean, they probably had very traditional roles to some extent, but um, the Viking Age is time of change. And it really seems that, you know, a lot of women were kind of going with the men on some of these um, Viking expeditions. So they they were probably trading with the men, for example. There's um, graves that have been found in the Rus or this sort of eastern part of the Viking world that I was talking about where there's women who have been buried in traditional Viking-style clothing and like with Viking jewelry, and they had scales in their graves. And so that kind of tells us that they were probably involved in traveling and trading. And we know that the people, for example, who settled in Iceland, those weren't just men. I mean, they obviously took their wives with them as well, or some women might have arrived there independently of any man. Another thing that I hadn't really realized just how like how important it was is that the women, they did all the textile work, so they made sure that everybody had clothes. But then in the Viking Age, people start sailing longer distances and they sail across the open sea. And so it wasn't really enough for the ship to have oars. You had to have sails. And there's something that happens at the beginning of the Viking Age to do with how they designed the ships and the, the masts. And so sails suddenly become much more important. It sort of underpins the ability to be able to travel, you know, to Britain and Ireland and these places and raid and um, pillage and trade as well. So it seems to be women who are making the sails. And so that sort of was probably like maybe um, in some cases it might have been, you know, a whole workshop that was maybe being run by women who were full-time employed as textile workers. But in other cases, um, a woman might have been, you know, she might have had like a side income doing extra spinning and weaving for somebody who commissioned a sale and was taking maybe textiles from several different households around the countryside. We don't really know exactly how it worked, but um, that means that sort of beyond the very traditional housewife role that we often see in the sort of more standard accounts of Viking women, they might have had all kinds of opportunities to have more diverse lives than that. But that was certainly the sort of, you know, traditional role of being a housewife and a mother was also completely fundamental in society and should not be treated as as being passive or something like that, which is something I really pushed against um, that sort of terminology in the book. Yes, absolutely. So you were mentioning that the Viking Age was a time of change. Do we have evidence of how it was prior maybe to the Viking Age? Like, has the role of women changed because of the Viking Age? I think what really changed for women on the whole was just that the world becomes bigger, there's more travel, um, and so there's there's more flow of goods, basically, so the economy is bigger or gets bigger and more diverse. And so there's just more opportunities to kind of plug into that. And if you lived in a place where, for example, there's um, an increase in the amount of soapstone that people were circulating and selling, at the time, and soapstone was something that was really good to cook in. It carried the heat so much better than other types of material. And so if you, for example, lived in a place that had soapstone, maybe you could get into that business of, you know, getting the soapstone out into the markets. And so it, it's just a period where even if you, you know, just lived on your own farm your entire life, there was still more variation and maybe more opportunities to sort of have a more diverse life. And people are also traveling more. So you would maybe meet people who had been to places further away and had maybe converted to Christianity. Um, so it's definitely a time of all kinds of change in economy and religion. And, you know, the social structures are staying the same, but like there's so much wealth flowing in that maybe there's more chances of upward mobility as well. So it's a, it's kind of a an exciting time for many women, probably. Yes, well, you're talking a lot about the changes. So you were saying that there's also Christianity. What was going on at the time? And how did that affect women? 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's really difficult to know what religion might have looked like before Christianity for most people, because um, we kind of run into the problem of sources. We obviously kind of know what Christianity brought to people in terms of, I mean, we all know the, the stories that they would have been hearing from missionaries, for example. Um, they're so ingrained, you know, in our culture and society, maybe. Um, but when you're trying to access what people believed in the period before Christianity came and they converted, um, what you kind of have is the 13th century narrative sources. So you have these um, Eddic poems, so-called, which were written down like mostly in one manuscript that's called the Codex Regius that was written in like around 1270 in Iceland. And it has some poems that kind of retell myths from, you know, originally from the Viking era. And then we have this textbook that Snorri Sturluson, who was this Icelandic chieftain and magnate, and he knew a lot of myths as well. And so he wrote this kind of book about all the myths that he knew, and he wanted to record all of this information so it wouldn't um, be forgotten. So the problem that you run in there is that, um, again, the sources are so much younger than the religion or the belief system that they are describing. But um, if you use them in a, a way and you try to kind of maybe synthesize them with other sources that you have from the Viking Age itself, then sometimes the outcome can be fairly reliable. And for example, there's a stone in, um, or there's several stones from the Viking Age in Scandinavia, where there's like a boat with a man in it, and then there's a foot going through it. And um, the man is fishing. This depicts a famous myth about Thor and his fishing expedition. And so this myth is told in these 13th century sources. And so then we can kind of be pretty sure that, like, in the Viking Age, that they were telling the same myth, although they might have told it differently from Snorri. Um, but in general, you know, a lot of this is sort of guesswork, and you're just trying to figure out what the most sort of likely scenario was. But yeah, it's really it's really hard to know very much about Viking Age beliefs. Yeah, it sounds like quite the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you just kind of have to accept that you can work yourself to some sort of hypothesis and conclusion and you can try to, you know, marshal the best evidence um, that can be found towards it. But um, at the end of the day, this is so much less secure knowledge than maybe our knowledge about, you know, Viking Age architecture or something that's sort of much more... Um, prosaic. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the art. So when you're looking at the art, do we know if there were any women artists, number one? And I guess number two would be, what did the art tell us about women? That's sort of a two-part question. Yeah. So about women artists, um, we do know that there were some because um, there's, for example, there's a stone in Norway called the Dinna stone, D-Y-N-N-A. And it's um, raised by a woman in memory of her daughter. And she says that her daughter was the handiest maiden in all of their area. Um, and then there are these pictures on the stone, the epiphany scene actually from the Bible. Um, and this is from very soon after the conversion. And so, I mean... There's another really interesting piece of evidence where we don't actually know whether it was created by women for sure, but it's, I would say it's like 99% likely. And that's um, a piece of tapestry that was found in this amazing burial called the Oseberg burial. And that was a big, big um, mound that was found in Norway about 100 years ago. And the Vikings, they had buried two women in this burial mound in a ship. And they had put all kinds of really, really expensive objects with them. And they had been kind of in this ship, but then they probably had um, a tapestry with them that was intended to be hung maybe in the, you know, the other world. When, when they got there, they were supposed to hang that on the walls. But... Um, that tapestry depicts all kinds of really, really intriguing scenes. And so there's, for example, figures who look like women because they're wearing sort of trailing skirts. Like some of them are, um, they're holding spears and they seem to have masks. And um, it's just very mysterious what's happening there. But because we know that textile work was the domain of women, it's pretty likely that this tapestry was woven by women. And, um, and you know, later poetry also talks about, like, a woman who's lost her husband and her family in, in this sort of feud, and she's grieving, and she makes a tapestry 
that depicts scenes from what has happened um, or for, from a previous war. And so she's kind of responding to her grief and like processing it through, you know, depicting these scenes of war in her tapestry. So I think this is pretty safe evidence in terms of um, both women as artists and then the depiction of um, women in art. I mean, there's there's also like a lot of kind of images of women holding drinking cups and those are like on the Gotland stones for example and then finally you have these little figurines which you know they're often made out of silver and they seem to have been maybe amulets that people kept on them like in a pouch or maybe on a necklace and there's this one that has um, it's a 3d figure of a woman with a sword and a spear and it's really beautiful it's like tiny and it's got all these details and I mean I think this is a Valkyrie probably but other interpretations um, have been that it's supposedly a depiction of an actual woman warrior but we'll never be able to tell maybe for sure Yes, well, you actually uh, segued very well into my next question, (laughs) (laughs) which was the title of your book. It's Valkyrie. So some people might not be aware of maybe what a Valkyrie is or was during the Viking Age. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Yeah, I could. Um, So the Valkyrie is a supernatural female figure, and she is present at battles, and she's usually sent there by Odin, who's the god of war. And she presides over the battle, or sometimes there's there's more than one there. And she decides who lives and who dies. And the ones who die, the warriors who die in battle, she takes them back to Odin. And he has this famous hall called Valhalla. And in the afterlife, the warriors, they fight for sport during the day. And then they feast in Valhalla in the evening. And then this just um, goes on and on until Ragnarök, which is the the doom of the gods, <laughs> which is sort of like an apocalypse in Norse mythology. And so it, what's really, really interesting about Norse mythology is that it contains this figure um, who's female, who's so um, much in this kind of male domain of battles and war and fighting. And she's really um, depicted in many different ways by different authors. We have these poems that they compose and probably sort of fairly reliable sources for the way that these poets actually thought about Valkyries. And um, some of these poets depict the Valkyries as very scary, and they're kind of bloodthirsty, and they're very excited about the warriors dying. And then others think about them as very ethereally beautiful and very sort of alluring and soft. And, you know, the idea of dying and being taken away by this beautiful creature, you know, maybe isn't the the worst way to die. Um, So it sort of seems to meant maybe slightly different things to different people. And it kind of has different functions in in culture. I mean, in some ways, it sort of has an ideological function, sort of making war seem very glamorous and dying in battle. It's a good fate because it was a Valkyrie, like higher power sent by Odin who decided that you should die. And so, you know, in a way you're lucky. Um, But then other poets have sort of more maybe ambivalent feelings about this whole ideology. And so that sort of gets played out in the way that they compose their poetry. So when we look at these mythologies about the Valkyries, we really get a good idea of different views from different authors or maybe different cultural ideas, maybe, or... Yeah, exactly. And maybe, you know, some people really bought into the whole industrial complex of going to war and, you know, both, this is both sort of going off maybe to England um, or or somewhere abroad and, you know, pillaging. And I mean, there's a certain risk involved in that. You know, a lot of the time, the locals were not that well prepared and they couldn't defend themselves that well, but that wasn't always the case. And for example, there's a grave that I talk about in the book a little bit where, Um, It's in Oxford where I used to study. And there was this mass grave that was found just a few years ago where um, they did analysis of the teeth and they were able to show that these were Viking warriors um, because they had all grown up in Scandinavia. You can see that from this tooth analysis. And, you know, they had clearly tried to raid 
this town, Oxford, and then they had been captured and there was just like a mass execution. Um, and so you have to sort of be able to rally <laughs> a fair amount of people to your cause and go off and, and take that risk. But then there were also a lot of just sort of wars within Scandinavia. So there were maybe different people all competing for the throne. And um, sometimes they, they were relatives, so like maybe a nephew would try to pose his uncle. Um, and, you know, sometimes they were successful, but sometimes not. And so there's just a lot of violence. And so how do you get people to kind of leave their farm and the security maybe of having a more quiet life and then go off and do all these things and, and engage in all this violence. I mean, up to a point, you promise them rewards, you know, financial, economic rewards, and maybe royal titles, but just sort of cultivating an ideology where um, you have figures like the Valkyrie and you have this promise of eternal life in this place where you, um, you get all this food <laughs> and you get to fight for sport. I mean, it sort of um, just tells you how sort of this culture was operating on several different levels. Yes, it definitely gives us a different view on it all, really, because most people might assume that it's all about, you know, traveling and these strong warriors that had no fear and all of this. So it gives us a bit of a, a gentler side, if you will. Yeah, and I mean, I think it also kind of helps us remember maybe that most humans aren't born, you know, fearless and that something that's a an attitude and a way of life maybe that needs to be instilled into people and it just doesn't like come out of nowhere um so that's something that the entire upbringing and culture needs to instill into people for a really long time mm -hmm. when you were doing research did you find any information about perhaps what the women wore how they did their hair or what their everyday look could be yeah, I mean, again, there's some problems that you run into with the archaeology is that things like swords and jewelry and, um, you know, things out of, made out of metal, they sometimes survive quite well in the earth, whereas clothes don't at all. Um, and so it's only in very exceptional circumstances that textiles survive. But, you know, we do have some fragments of like dresses and stuff that have survived. And then there's also these visual depictions that I was talking about. And so when you kind of try to put them all together, and also because archaeologists, um, they've been like doing experiments with like how long would it take to go from, you know, a bunch of wool that you get off the sheep and then until you have a finished garment. And it takes weeks and weeks just to make like a shirt. And so we know that fabric was really expensive and they wouldn't have been wasting it. And so that probably meant that um, clothes were quite fitted. And I mean, you see that in other times as well in history when um, you had rationing and so on, and that clothes become much more fitted and there's no waste of fabric. And then um, maybe the richer you are, the more fabric you have. But most people were probably wearing these smocks, like a shirt, uh, a kirtle underneath. And then they have another layer, like a long dress usually. And then they have these two oval brooches on each shoulder, or like sort of on the chest beneath the shoulder. And that seems to be pretty ubiquitous around the Viking world, that women had these so-called tortoise brooches because they look like a tortoise. So they're like uh, domed. And then these brooches would have all kinds of patterns and shapes on them. And that maybe could tell you something about where the woman was from. Sometimes they seem to have been heirlooms. So archaeologists have found graves where a woman was buried maybe with a brooch that was much, much older than herself. And so it might have been a present, you know, from a grandmother who got it from her grandmother or something like that. And um, so, yeah, like people definitely wore like layers of clothing and then for outerwear, they were just wearing, you know, shawls and coats of various kinds and sometimes maybe some furs and so on. But yeah, like they probably had more colorful clothes maybe than we would expect because they were able to dye in different colors. And so if you had some means, you would probably try to get some color into your clothing rather than just wearing the drag sheep's colors. Yeah, humans are innovators and we tend to like colors. We do. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you're talking about different things that women are wearing, like brooches and their style of dress. 
Were there any other things that they carried or that they had with them that we would know maybe from archaeology or from the sagas or poems? Yeah, um, in archaeology, sometimes they've found... So they have these brooches and then they often have like a string between the brooches with different beads. So they have often these strings with beads on them. And sometimes like maybe even several strings and um, pendants and all kinds of things. But then they often have like chains hanging from these brooches as well with maybe some tools and, you know, maybe some shears or tweezers or ear spoons. And then there's the key. And we don't know exactly like whether the key had some sort of um, symbolic meaning. Because, you know, if you walked around and you had a key dangling from your dress... I mean, it might have just been a statement that you had stuff to lock up. So it might have just sort of been a statement that you had property, right? But then the sort of maybe older view in archaeology was that the key was the symbol of the housewife. And I think that partly comes from, there's a one of these Eddic poems that I was talking about has a really funny story about Thor having to dress up like a woman in order to get the gods out of trouble. And so he has to pretend to marry this man, this Jotun, which is a, like another sort of social group in the mythology that the gods usually don't want to have anything much to do with um, unless it's to take their women away from them. Was that like the giants? Yeah, it's sometimes translated as giants, but a lot of the time they don't really seem to be very large. And so that translation has kind of been losing currency quite a lot. And so sometimes we just use the word Yotun because there's no good way of translating it. I mean, basically, it's a social group that seems to be less elite. And like the gods sometimes take wives from this group, but they won't let this group marry their own women. And so there's a Jotun man who wants to marry Freya. And Thor pretends to be Freya, basically, because... Freya doesn't want to go and marry this man. And there's a description of like how Loki is helping him dress up as a woman. And that sort of hinges on Thor having um, like a headdress and women's clothing. And then he has a set of keys hanging from his waist, I think. And there's a couple of other references in the sagas to women having the keys to the pantry. And so the sort of old interpretation of keys in graves in the archaeological record was that if a woman was buried with a key that must mean she was a housewife but I think that's again like an interpretation that's been challenged by a lot of archaeologists recently because um, keys are so rare in the archaeological record for example in Denmark I think there were like a very small proportion of women's graves that actually had keys in them and there's not really a reason to kind of conclude that the key meant housewife and there's sort of more likely explanations that either it was a symbol of property ownership and sort of status, or there's others uh, think that it means that it um, had like a more symbolic meaning that it it was like a key to knowledge. And so a woman who had a key had a special role in society that she had special knowledge that not everybody had. And so she would be like a wise woman in the society. And I think that's a really interesting interpretation. And um, sort of, again, it's like really hard to say for sure, because um, the people who were burying their loved ones with keys or whatever other objects, they we can't really know what they were thinking when they were doing the burial. But we can try to, you know, get to the best interpretation. Yeah. And as you've said, the textiles were very complex to make. I'm guessing the objects were also very labor intensive. Many of them were, yeah. But I mean, it's also like some of the labor was sort of just the basic labor that you always had to do. But then when you get to the more like decorating aspect, for example, um, sometimes you see objects that have been carved in all kinds of ways that doesn't really have a practical function so that has you know much more to say about like could you afford to have somebody carve your nice beautiful door or your ship or your cart or whatever and you know in these sort of ornate um, patterns but yeah this just the manufacture of objects was incredibly labor intensive you know even the more sort of mass-produced objects where you maybe just poured um I mean, they, they had molds, you know, to make brooches, for example, or keys or amulets. So they would be able to produce many items that you know were exactly the same. But still, like compared to now, the, the labor of just 
sort of <laughs> having basic objects to run your your household and make food and you know tend to your animals and everything would have been just beyond comprehension for us I think yes absolutely and if we look back at some of the women that you mentioned in your book so were there any women that you found particularly interesting and can you talk about them a little bit and explain why you find them interesting well I <laughs> I can give you a list of 100 women, but I'll try to restrain myself. (laughs) (laughs) How about um, somebody who's more popular, who's known a little bit more right now, you know, to most people? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, for example, are interested in this woman who some sources say that she was called Öðr or Aud, and other sources say Unn or Unnur. And um, she actually lived in Scotland, probably in the Viking Age, and then was married to this man who was a Viking, and he was the king of Dublin for a while. And they, um, we don't know if they had a divorce or what happened, but at any rate, she's alone in Scotland, and then there's all this violence in the area. And so she decides to go to Iceland with her household and all of her like following, basically. And so she has a ship made in secret. And as I said in the book, she probably must have had a sail made as well because um, she needed a sail to sail to Iceland. So they all go to Iceland and um, settle in this area in the west. And there's a lot of different stories about this woman in different sources in Iceland. And I thought she was really um, cool. And she sort of behaves kind of like a Viking chieftain, basically, who happens to be a woman in many ways. So she's very assertive and, you know, independent and strong and everything. But then she marries off her granddaughters in, in the way that is usually described, sort of mostly where, you know, Viking fathers marry off their daughter to some other chieftain or king or something, you know, in order to create bonds between them. And then there's this wonderful description of when she's old. And in Norse mythology, uh, there's this figure like who is death. And death is imagined as an old lady. And it sort of has interesting connections with the depiction of Unnur in the saga of the Laxdala saga. And she's like very regal, arranges this marriage between her grandson and a local girl. And then at the wedding, she's kind of this matriarch and everyone's you know sort of bowing to her almost. And then after the wedding, she's found in her bedchamber dead and sitting upright. And so there's this kind of line about her having been, you know, proud and strong to the end. And then she's buried in great splendor. And so I think this woman is someone who captivates a lot of people, just the way that she's strong and kind of, she's a migrant. And I mean, we think a lot about migrants, I guess, um, these years, these last years. And, you know, she doesn't fight, like she's not a a woman warrior or anything, but she still manages to kind of leave such a strong impression, like on culture, I guess. I mean, judging just from how many stories there are about her, that people are still remembering her, you know, 300 years, 400 years later and writing sagas about her. And so there seems to be like a lot of scope in this culture for, you know, these women who break out of their sort of more traditional roles, maybe, and they're survivors, really. I guess you could say. So I guess a lot of the stories, because they, as you said, were written down in Iceland, they're about Icelanders? Or do we have sources in Scandinavia per se or anything there? So in Iceland, they sort of have different types of sagas. And some of them are very narrowly about the people who moved to Iceland and settled there. But then there are all kinds of other sagas about the history of Norway and and Sweden and Denmark. Um, And those are many of our main sources about that history, even though they were written down in Iceland. And these authors seem to have like traveled to Scandinavia and, you know, Snorri Sturluson who wrote some of these sagas, he claims to have um, had sources, for example, in Norway that told him these stories, and then he was the one who wrote them down. And then he's using a lot of so-called skaldic poetry, which is, for example, the poetry that has these Valkyrie figures in, and, and a lot of it is like narrating battles that happened in the Viking Age. 
And because the rules of this poetry, like in terms of the meter, so like the rules about rhyme and like how you construct the stanza, like technically, the rules are so strict that um, a lot of scholars believe that it's kind of hard to change anything. So when you memorize a poem, you're probably going to memorize it pretty much the way that the poet himself or herself composed it because um, there's so many different strict rules that um, it's sort of hard to change anything. Whereas like with Eddie poetry, which is the more about the myths, it's much more flexible and the meter is much simpler. And so if you maybe memorize the poem and then the next day you're trying to recite it and then you might have forgotten the line and then you can just substitute it with some other line that you make up yourself because the rules are not that strict. And so people think that skaldic verse um, is a pretty reliable source for the Viking Age even though the poems were first written down in the 13th century often in Iceland. <laughs> and so they, they think that they probably survived like 200 odd years just in memory that people would have been like telling each other these poems. And so there are poems, like a lot of it is just kind of fairly conventional and generic and it's about battles. And, you know, it just sort of describes how well so-and-so fought in the battle, but then the Valkyrie came and took him <laughs> or something. But there's also like more political skaldic verse. And maybe I could tell you about two things um, in that vein. Oh, yes, please do. First of all, there's a poem describing a queen called Astrid, who has a really interesting backstory. And her husband was a king of Norway, and he got killed in some battle. And then um, they didn't actually have any sons, but he had a son by a concubine. And then this son is kind of one of the pretenders to the throne after the death of this king. And so she supports her stepson for the Norwegian throne and uh, becomes sort of involved in all kinds of dealings that go on behind the scenes. And then he finally becomes the king of Norway. Then there's this poet who composes a poem in her honor of like how well she kind of maneuvered in those political dealings and um, sort of praises her in the highest of terms. But then there's also a couple of stanzas that are attributed to women poets. And um, one of these political verses talks about like some intrigues in Norway, you know, over a thousand years ago, and um, is sort of a comment on what was happening politically. And that poem is attributed to a woman. And it's one of the few women poets that we kind of have fairly reliable evidence for. So I had asked you to fill out a form and you had mentioned to, is it Aslog? So she's the daughter of the famous dragon killer Sigurd? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm actually very interested in knowing about her, if you don't mind sharing a little bit again. Yeah, I mean, her sort of early years are almost like in a fairy tale because um, so both of her parents are these legendary figures and they have like a very dramatic story arc and they both end up dying and, and kind of like family quarrels <laughs> and this sort of fatal love triangle or quadrangle really. But they had this daughter, Osler, and she gets put in a harp by her foster father and taken away. And, and that's how she sort of survives all these feuds and whatnot. And she grows up with this foster father. So she has this lineage, you know, on one hand, her mother was a Valkyrie. And uh, on the other hand, her father was like the bravest uh, man in the world and you know the big greatest hero ever born. And then she marries this uh, legendary Viking warrior, Ragnar Lothbrok, and he already like has some children by a previous wife um, who had died. And then they have another son, at least. I can't remember how many kids they have. And then just like in the TV show, like Ragnar is always off on some Viking adventure or other, and sometimes with his son. And then there's one chapter in, in the saga about them that says that she joins um, her stepsons on one of these Viking missions. It doesn't say that she fought, but she she's kind of like there in the battle and she's, you know, participating in all the strategizing and all that. But then again, you know, this is a legendary saga. And so we shouldn't take it at face value as, you know, saying that women were warriors at the time. But um, it's really intriguing that she's 
just this figure who is extremely assertive and warlike, and she even changes her name when she goes off to this battle with her sons um, from Aslaug, which is a sort of just a very traditional Norse name, and she changes it to Rantalin, which is like the goddess of the shields. <laughs> So she's a really, really interesting figure. And I think um, if you're interested in learning more, there's a really good, really um, new translation by Jackson Crawford that you can probably find easily online. Saga Ragnar Lodbro. Is that in the Havavamo, the new one? No, he has several different ones, I think. Okay. He has the Saga of the Valsungs and Saga of Ragnar Lodbro together. You know, for your listeners, if anybody wants to follow up on this. <laughs> Oh, yes, absolutely. These sagas are so fascinating. And it seems as though you can get some translations online. But sometimes, as you said, you know, the Jotuns, which they've changed from giants to just sort of another people. Yeah, I mean, also, when you're using translations that are available for free online, they are usually out of copyright, which means that they are old. And so that doesn't always mean that they're, you know, bad or anything. But um on one hand, sometimes, you know, with more research, our understanding of particular concepts, you know, and words have changed. And so we would translate them differently now from 100 years ago. But another aspect of these translations is that these translators, they were, you know, Victorians, they were really into everything that was ancient and old. And they sort of made their English sound really antiquated because they were trying to make it, you know, sound old. Whereas saga style is often much more sort of similar maybe to modern Icelandic um, in a way maybe that it's often compared to the way that when we read Shakespeare, we need a little bit of help. But essentially, you know, an English speaker, um, native speaker can understand most of Shakespeare. And people often talk about like the saga style or sagas, saga language is similar for a modern Icelander. So when we read a translation from, say, late 19th century, and there's all this twas and, you know, thou and, and so on, the style seems very affected. And so I usually um, discouraged my students when I was teaching from reading these old translations, just because the language isn't actually as sort of... <laughs> antiquated as yeah like i think for them you know it just makes them sound less accessible than they really are sometimes when you look at like more recent translations and they're much more faithful really to the original style and that just makes them much more attractive to read really sorry that was like <laughs> no 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 we should absolutely support all of these translators i mean there's so much work involved in what they've done and it's a very good thing to buy their book and support them online absolutely yes he is doing the good work <laughs> yeah i'm a big fan too of dr crawford <laughs> it's just really interesting because i remember like i guess i was in grad school a little bit less than 15 years ago and like when you you know met people who Anyone who was doing kind of medievalism or like the reception of medieval anything, it was usually really rare to meet anybody doing that kind of research. And kind of like Wagner or Tolkien, and then there wasn't a lot of other stuff happening. But like now it's just a really happening field. And it's just like there's so much to learn from this. Anyway, that was a really like long and convoluted um no, it's great. I loved it. I did have one last fun question. Actually, no, I had two. Sorry, if you don't mind. You mentioned teaching, but you were saying how you now have a new job, which sounds really exciting. So what is the job and what are you doing right now? Right now, I am working at the National Library in um, Oslo, Norway. And I am doing law code. It's um, the Norwegian town laws or the bylaws, essentially. And so um, they kind of regulate um, all kinds of things to do with um, life in town. And this is really a time when um, in Norway in the Viking Age, there wasn't a lot of um, urbanization. I mean, the towns that were, were maybe a thousand inhabitants or something like that, whereas like in the high Middle Ages, you had much bigger towns and you just um, needed, you know, laws to kind of regulate what was happening in them. And so I've been editing all these manuscripts that are um, have them. And um, so the edition is about like kind of going through all the different witnesses and um, documenting the variation in the manuscripts themselves and maybe trying to get back 
to what the original law actually had. But then I also find them really interesting in terms of the content. And I've been, you know, telling people how cool they are. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of like really funny little um, codes. Like there's a code about how wide your balcony can be. And I just didn't really <laughs> realize that they had all these um, zoning laws in 1276 about the size of balconies or there's a lot of fire regulations actually and um, there's like regulations about drunkenness and um, you know where in town you can have your shop like if you are a cobbler or you know if you're selling food then you have to be in a different area of town and so on and so it's just really interesting and fun to work on these laws and sort of try to picture you know what life might have been like in medieval Bergen or Oslo. That almost sounds like a, a good premise for another book. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So I guess my last question, so if you had a time machine, <laughs> what time would you like to go back to? Who would you like to meet? Or what event would you like to witness or partake in? And of course, you come back safely and all that fun stuff. <laughs> Okay, so I can't say that I don't want to go back to the Viking Age because they had terrible, uh, you know, living conditions. And <laughs> yes, no, no, <laughs> you won't catch anything. You're safe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. That's um. That's like picking your favorite candy out of the chocolate box. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it would be really, really cool to um, to go back and, for example, there's um, this character called Gunnhild, often called Mother of Kings, who um, I would love to meet because she's probably one of the characters in all of the sagas um, who there are probably the most amount of sources about her and the most conflicting ones. And so she's a, um, married to this king called Eric Bloodaxe, which is an amazing nickname. <laughs> and, um, you know, in some accounts of her, she's just a ruthless politician. And in other accounts, um, she's a sorceress. And in one saga, you know, she's kind of a nymphomaniac. And so it's very different views on her. And so I think I would like to go and meet her and know what she was like in reality. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your knowledge on the Vikings. As you know, I'm super interested in Vikings. So this is really great. And I love the fact that you're able to look at it so differently. Let's just say in a way to try to understand how families and women and men and everybody interacted in these societies. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad you say that. Uh, that's sort of exactly what I was trying to do. And just, you know, go behind um, maybe the, the stereotypes and the best known facts and just think about them as real people who did extraordinary things a lot of the time, but they were also human and they had families and problems and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Rosie. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you know that Vikings is kind of my favorite topic, so you can understand how excited I was to talk to her today. So thank you so much, Dr. Frederick's daughter, for enlightening us on the topic. It was really great to have you on. The book recommendation is Dr. Frederick's daughter's book, Valkyrie, the Women of the Norse World. Hopefully you can get your hands on a copy. And I would say if you're trying to get to the library to get Dr. Frederick's daughter's book and you can't, Perhaps look at some articles online. Some of those academic journals have recent information. Don't forget, you can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at History A. You can send me an email. You can visit the website, historya.com. And apparently, it's really nice if you can rate me on your podcasting platform of choice. It helps people find me. So I appreciate all of the positive reviews. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, and our family, and our friends, Without them, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.